Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. Our time together here. Third chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, looking at verses 14 and following. You know, one of the casualties of the modern world, I think, is peace and quiet. This, uh, this world is filled with all kinds of distractions that are constantly uh, nagging at us. And it's really hard to, to quiet a noisy soul. It's hard to make time with the Lord to, to read the word and to pray and to think seriously about what he has said to us. But you know, beloved, if we're going to make any forward progress in the Christian faith, we need to do that. We need to, to make time to read the scriptures and make time to commune with the Lord in prayer. And, because this prayer is the God-ordained means by which he acts in this world, both in our lives and in the lives of those around us. So here in chapter 3 and beginning in verse 14, we have a prayer for us. One could say it's a model prayer. That is, that as we study this prayer and understand what it is that that drove Paul in terms of his requests of God, we could model our prayers along similar lines. Follow as I read, Paul writes, beginning in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power, through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This is the second prayer that Paul recorded here in this letter to the church at Ephesus. And it follows, like the other one, on the heels of a great doctrinal section, a great teaching time in chapter 2, following it here in chapter 3 with this prayer. In chapter 2, he he has talked about Christ's work of reconciliation and how, uh, in union with Christ, We have been vertically reconciled to God as our Father and horizontally reconciled one to another, a reconciliation so deep and profound that it crosses over and indeed destroys the ancient animosities and barriers between Jew and Gentile. Paul also prayed, as I say, this is the second prayer. He prayed in chapter 1, and I'll just turn you back there just to reacquaint you with it. In verses 15 through 23... There also it follows a great doctrinal section about God's uh, predestinating love as he set it upon us to call us unto himself and to unite us with Christ. And there uh, Paul prays in verses 15 through the end of the chapter that that the believers would know about God's power towards them. Here in chapter 3, and he verses 14 through 16, he's praying that they would experience God's power. So the two prayers here at the end of chapter 1, 
is that they would know the power of God toward them. Here it is that they would experience the power of God toward them. As a John Stott rightly observed in his fine little book called God's New Society, he says prayer and preaching go together, and I think we should observe that reality. There's great teaching followed by prayer, that prayer and preaching go together, and prayer waters the seed of biblical instruction, Stott observes, and I think that's true. We pray that the Spirit would make the instruction spring to life in the hearts of his people. So, contextually, let's just take a moment and pick up the train of thought again as we launch into this. So, verse 13, chapter 3, Paul is concerned for the believers there. He's concerned about their discouragement. Notice he says, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. So Paul is very concerned that they are, that they are discouraged by the news of his imprisonment there in Rome. And so he now wants to inform them, uh, 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 he, or, or said again, he wants to, to come back to the prayer that he started over in uh, verse 1 for them, and he wants to tell them that he's praying for them. He wants to inform them that he's praying, because this will be an antidote for their discouragement. And so this prayer, you see it in verse 1, he says, for this reason, chapter 3, verse 1, you see it again in verse 14, same chapter, for this reason. So Paul's returning to the topic that he had originally begun with. What reason is it? It's the reason of the one new man that he has revealed to them in his teaching in verse 15 of chapter 2. So specifically there in that chapter, Paul has taught, right, that we become one new man in Christ by union with Jesus Christ. We become the one new man, and as one new man, we have an intimate access. Look at verse 18, chapter 2. We have an intimate access to God as Father in the Spirit. You see it? He says, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And so there's an intimacy that has been wrought for us by the work of the Spirit in union with Christ. And it is this intimacy, looking over to verse 12 of chapter 3, that grants the confidence and the boldness that will now enable Paul, as he begins to to express his prayer here in verse 14, to pray a really audacious kind of prayer. He is intimate with the Father as we are intimate with the Father in the Spirit, and he is now going to pray this audacious prayer, this bold prayer, that God would make available his matchless power to these Ephesian believers. And that is a very audacious prayer, to ask that God would make available the vastness of his power to the believer. In fact, down in verse 20, where he finishes with a doxology, you see where he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think. Well, Paul is going to make a very audacious request here. And, uh, and he can do it in the confidence of the intimacy he has with the Father in the Spirit. So notice how he addresses the Father here. And uh, in addressing the Father, I, I believe in verses 14 and 15, where he talks about bowing his knee and, and so forth, I think what's being expressed here is the sovereignty of God. That he is addressing God as sovereign and, he, and thus able to answer that kind of audacious prayer. And I, and I believe that he's seeing the sovereignty of God here based on the, the posture of his prayer and the language in which he approaches it. So just 
Taking a look at this quickly, the posture first. Notice he says, verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, there's, in the scriptures, there's many different kinds of prayer postures. So there's not like one way you have to, you know, arrange your body in order to pray. You can pray with your eyes open, your eyes closed, standing up, sitting down, walking, laying down. There are many, many different ways you can pray driving. Don't close your eyes in that one, please. Unless you have one of these fancy new cars, right, that does the driving for you. A prayer car. (laughs) You know what? I think there's Christians who would buy it. The prayer car. In any case, it doesn't matter the posture, right? But there's something about kneeling. There's something about kneeling that I think conveys a a special awareness, really, of, of God's majesty and his sovereignty. And so I think that that's why Paul informs them here, because he's, he's telling them about his prayer. And so I think that's why he's informing them that, that he's on his knees on their behalf. He's, he's bent onto his knees in the presence of a sovereign God. And, and notice how he goes on to describe this God, the Father. He said, the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, that's a very interesting kind of verse and has generated a certain amount of, of, of varying understandings of what it is that, that Paul is trying to communicate here. Some see this statement here where he says, from whom every family in heaven and earth divides its name as a, as a reference to the family of God. And that the idea of on earth and, you know, every family in heaven and on earth is a reference to the, to the church. And so it's the church derives its name from the Father, both the, the church that's alive here on earth and those that have gone on to be with the Lord and are there in heaven. And that's one interpretation. But I don't think it's the better one. I think there's a better one than that. And I think the one that's better is to see it as a reference to both uh, human and angelic beings. So where he says, from whom every family in heaven a reference to the angelic world and on earth, derives its name. In fact, over in Hebrews 12, 9, uh, he is called the father of the spirits. So if I'm right in that, what, what in the world is he, is he communicating by this sort of statement? And I, and I think what he's communicating is sovereignty. I think the bending of the knees and the, and the reference of the father in this way is to communicate the sovereignty of God and thus his ability to grant the prayer that that Paul's about to express. And the reason I think it's that is, is because in the Old Testament, the naming, the, the, the naming function was a sign of authority. It was a sign of, of, uh, of expressing power and authority and, and sovereignty. And so here I think when he says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, or uh, as the ESV says, uh, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, is there is a reference to that Old Testament idea that to give something its name is to have authority over it, is to have sovereignty over it. And so, basically, I think what Paul's saying here is, is that God is the one who gives classification and identity to everything in both heaven and on earth. We see the idea, you know, in like Genesis 2.19, for example... Where there, out of the earth, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. 
And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. It shows you the authority of Adam over the creation that has been delegated to him by God. Over in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 26, we see there it's where it says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. So I think what Paul is, is communicating here as he begins his prayer is that he is calling on his father who has the authority, who has the sovereignty to grant the most audacious kind of request that one could imagine. And so it is to this powerful God that, that Paul makes his appeal. And his appeal is simply this, that as a loving father, God would pour forth his power upon the Ephesian believers. It's a simple request, but it's, a, it's really an amazing request that God would pour forth his power upon the church. Now, the, the Greek syntax, that is the, the, the uh, sentence structure here in verses 14 to, to 19, is notoriously confusing. It's one big long sentence, 86 words, and all kinds of, of uh, clauses, and, and has led to some varying opinions about exactly what is the prayer request. Is it one request? Um, you know, or is it multiple requests that all sort of relate to the same thing? And the answer is, um, I think it's two requests. Okay, so that's how I've approached it. I believe it is two prayer requests here, and, and so we're going to break it down. I'm going to look at it in two prayer requests. And now, by the way, the, the uh, confusing uh, Greek sentence structure shouldn't really concern anyone and probably is even... Um, Expected, I suppose, when you've got somebody who's vocalizing a very passionate prayer and you've got somebody else trying to write it down and record every word that they've said. And so, so the whole, you know, the niceties of Greek grammar and syntax just don't apply in these kinds of things. So, so here it is. I think there are basically two distinctly identifiable yet related requests. And that's how I want to look at it. So here's the big idea. Okay, here's the big idea. Two key prayer requests regarding the power of God. What I believe we have here in verses 14 and 19, two key prayer requests regarding the power of God so that we might know the love of Christ and joyously submit to his lordship over our lives. Okay, the two requests are to know the love of Christ and to joyously submit to his lordship over our lives. And that's the way I want to look at it with you, and I want to take it in reverse order. So the, what we'll look at this morning is Paul's prayer, number one, for the power to submit to the Lordship of Christ. Paul prays for the power to submit to the Lordship of Christ. Look at verses 16 and 17. I pray, he says, that he, that is the Father, would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Stop right there. The gist of the prayer here is pretty easy to get. Right? It's pretty simple. He is praying that God would grant power to the Ephesian believers. That's it. That's the, that's the request. But the, uh, the hows and whys of it all are um, not immediately apparent in all of that. The request, I think, is easy to understand. The hows and whys, a little bit more confusing. So I want to break it down for you. Okay, and what I want to do is I want to break it down, this 
request into its component parts. I think there are four of them. So we'll break it down into these four component parts. We'll look at them all individually. Then we'll reassemble them. And I think that that will be, make it clear exactly what it is he's asking for. So the four component parts are this. The extent of the power. The agent of the Father's power. The sphere of the Father's power. And the purpose of the Father's power. So the extent, the agent, the sphere, and the purpose. Okay? So let's take a look at it. To begin with, the extent of the Father's power. That he would grant you, Paul says, according to the riches of his glory. So right away, we notice that, that, that Paul asked God to grant power to the believers according to, not out of, his riches. Okay? That he would grant you according to his riches, not out of his riches. In other words, that, that these riches would correspond to or on, a, or on a scale commensurate with the wealth of God. Think of it this way. If Bill Gates were to give you a gift out of his riches, he might give you 100 bucks, And you'd be happy. But if Bill Gates were to grant you a gift commensurate with his $85 billion net worth, you would be talking about billions of dollars, right? And then you would be far happier still. So you, you get the basic idea, right? According to or out of. And so what Paul is praying here is that, is that this gift would correspond to the extent of the power of God. In other words, he's praying not for some teeny small little thing, not a hundred bucks. He is praying that, that, that God would pour forth out of his power. Now, this expression here, the riches of his glory, and um, it, it means basically the riches that consist of his glory. Okay, it's a genitive. The riches that consist of his glory. In other words, God's glory, which are his riches. What is God's glory? Well, it's this. God's glory is a manifestation of who he is in all his splendor, majesty, Holiness, righteousness, mercy, grace, truth, and power. That is, that is his character. You know, the totality of his being is his glory. And so here in the context of, of power, I think that's the aspect of his glory that Paul is focused on, is that God would grant them a gift of his power that corresponds with the, with the vast sum of it all, the vast riches of all of that. This is not a unique request, by the way, uh, on the part of the Apostle Paul for Christian believers. And I probably should say it here. He's, he's praying specifically for the Ephesian believers here, but I think by extension we could say that this applies to all of us too. Over in Colossians chapter 1, verse 11, we see similar wording over there, where he says that uh, he's praying that the believers may be strengthened with all power according to the might of of his glory. That's a literal translation, but according to the might of God's glory, that the believers would be strengthened with all power. The resources of God, when it comes to power, are limitless. They are limitless because they are drawn from his inexhaustible glory, the glory of his character. And so what Paul is praying here is that God would grant them power corresponding to 
this limitless supply of the power of God. That's the extent of the Father's power. Secondly, the agent of the Father's power. The agent. So that they would be strengthened with power through His Spirit. You see it there in verse 16. From the riches of His glory, that is, you know, according, according to the riches of His glory, corresponding to the, to the riches of the glory of God, that they would be strengthened with power through His Spirit. His Spirit is the agent. Is, a, is the agent. He's the one who mediates the power of God the glo- from the glory of God to the believer. It is the Holy Spirit. When we first trusted Christ, the Spirit of God took up residence within us, right? Paul tells us over in, uh, in uh, chapter 1, for example, in uh, verse 13 and 14, that, uh, that he is the, the uh, seal, we were sealed in him, and he is the, the pledge of, our, uh, of our, um, the, the completion of our salvation. He's the one who, who makes it sure. And so we have been united with Christ by faith, and the Spirit resides within us as the seal and as the guarantee of that reality. But at the end of the Old Covenant and the coming of the New, the work of the Spirit changes. We looked at that, I think it was last week, right? The Spirit of God, third person of the Godhead, He is the agent by which now uh, the, the divine power is dispensed into this present world. You see it over in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, I'll just read it to you just to remind you of that. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Right? You'll be my witnesses in both Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even the remotest part of the earth. The Spirit of God is now the, the, um, the agent through which the power of God is mediated into this world. And so Paul is praying here that commensurate with his, the riches of his glory, he's asking the Father through the agency of the indwelling Spirit to give the believers power. The word is dunamis. It means ability or capacity. So he's asking the Spirit to mediate the power of God to them, the ability, the capacity for something. Notice um, that it's power through his Spirit, and then notice uh, the sphere of that power, the end of verse 16, is the inner man. So the extent is the, the, the riches of the power of, uh, of the power of God. The, the agent is the spirit. The sphere is the inner man. You see it there in verse 16. What is this inner man? What in the world is he talking about? Well, if you take a, you know, let your eyes just drop down to uh, verse 17, you see a, the, a parallel expression, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. So I think you can understand the inner man and the heart as to being roughly synonymous. Roughly synonymous here. And we know from Matthew, for example, Matthew 15, 19, Jesus says that out of the heart, right, come all of the issues of life. They proceed from the heart. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, the word of God is able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. So what is the heart or what is the inner man that Paul is talking about where we need to be strengthened? Well, one writer, I think, says it well. He says the the inner man is the domain of our being that controls our character and prepares us for heaven. It's the invisible part of us through which we act. Another writer calls it this way. It's the moral and spiritual side of people. So, 
It contrasts with the outer man, 2 Corinthians 4.16, right? The outer man is the physical body. That's the part that's wasting away through the ravages of, of sin and, and uh, infirmity and physical abuse and so forth. What Paul says there, 2 Corinthians 4.16, though we do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, right? the older I get, the more I can identify with that, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. Okay, the, 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 the moral, spiritual side is being renewed day by day. So let's put the pieces together here for a minute. Take stock of where we are. In recognition of the sovereignty of God, verses 14 and 15, and their relation to him as their father, chapter 2, Paul boldly prays for the Ephesians that God would grant them through his spirit, the ability or the capacity in their character, right, for, quite, for Christ to dwell in their hearts by faith. Verse 17, for Christ to dwell in their hearts by faith. What does that mean? What is it that he's asking? I mean, I thought the moment, didn't, didn't I say, the moment we, we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God takes up residence within us? Yes, I did say that because it's true. Because it's true. He does. So what is it that he's asking for here? If the Spirit already resides within, what does, he, what does he mean that the Spirit may dwell in your hearts through faith? And I think that to unlock this, and this is the purpose of the Father's power. That was the fourth component here, the purpose of the Father's power. I think in order to unlock it, the, the best way to do is to, is to take a look at the verb, to dwell. And, uh, and what it means is to settle down somewhere. To settle down somewhere. And it, and it refers to the idea of permanence rather than a temporary dwelling. A permanent dwelling rather than a temporary dwelling. A permanent abode. The idea, I think you could say, is to take up residence. Paul is praying that, that, um, that Christ may take up residence in their hearts. This permanent nature. The word, the verb is used the same way over in Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 to speak of the fullness of deity dwelling in Christ. That is that it's settled down in permanent residence in Christ, right? For in him all the fullness of deity dwells, same verb, in bodily form. So what is it that, that Paul is praying for here? Well, I think that D.A. Carson gives a really helpful analogy that kind of unlocks this whole prayer request. He's written a really wonderful little book, and well, it's not too little, but I would recommend it to you, and it's called uh, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. It's an examination of the prayers of the Apostle Paul. It's by D.A. Carson, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. And I would commend that book to you to read for your own uh, edification. But in the book... He gives what I think is a really helpful analogy of unlocking exactly what is this, this purpose here so that the Christ may settle down in your hearts through faith. And, and he does it by, by kind of telling a story. So here it goes. It's something like this. When a young couple buys a house for the first time, it, it typically needs a lot of work. Right? You first-time home buyers, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It typically needs a ton of work. Usually it needs to be painted. And it probably needs new flooring, maybe new carpeting or, you know, new tile in the bathroom or whatever. So it needs new flooring. 
Uh, it, it may need a bathroom remodel or a kitchen remodel. You know, it probably was up to date 50 years ago, but it could use a, a facelift. Um, it may need electrical work. I know when we bought our house out here in California, we had a, we had a, a breaker box that was the size of a shoebox. And um, it was a little hard to, you know, you plugged in too many things in the same room and out go the lights. So, so it needed electrical upgrade. And a lot of first-time home buyers, they experience that too, need electrical upgrades. Uh, often you need plumbing, right? You got that old galvanized pipe where after all the years of the, of the water flowing through it that's hard water, you've got a hole about the size of a pencil lead, and you don't have much water pressure. So it needs to be replumbed, right? So all of these things are what are necessary to kind of bring, you know, bring the house along. You might need landscaping. But here's the thing. At the moment you close escrow, it's your house, right? It's your house. And you, and you begin to live in it. But it's a long way from becoming truly your home. You, you get the distinction? It is your house, but it's a long way from becoming your home. And over the course of time, you know, as finances enable, you, you begin to do the necessary repairs and the remodels. And, and one day you sort of wake up and realize that, that you, you know, you're really comfortable living here. You have settled down. It has become your permanent abode. So this is what Carson says. I quote. He says, In a similar way, when Christ first takes up residence in us, he finds the moral equivalent of mounds of trash, black and silver wallpaper, and a leaking roof. He sets about turning this residence into a place appropriate for him a home which makes him comfortable. There is a lot of cleaning to do, quite a few repairs, and some much-needed expansion. Make no mistake, when Christ first moves into our lives, he finds us in very bad repair. It takes a great deal of power to change us, and that is why Paul prays for power. I think Carson's right on. He is right on. We're a mess. We are a mess. And it takes a lot of work. It takes work that can only be accomplished by the inexhaustible power of the God who spoke the universe into existence. Whose power raised Christ from the dead to the glory of the Father. We need God's inexhaustible power to be holy. We need his power to think, to act, and to speak in ways that are pleasing to him. We need his power to strengthen our moral resolve and to humble our proud hearts. Supernatural power to to seek to serve other people rather than to seek to be served by other people. The power of God to, to obediently trust him in the trials of life, in the difficult circumstances like loss of loved ones or loss of job or on and on it goes. What Paul is praying here is that God would extend his power to these people to submit 
to the lordship of Christ in their life and to grow in the likeness of Jesus accordingly. Spiritual strength, beloved, is essential to carrying out the moral imperatives of the second half of this book. I mean, this prayer, take a look structurally, this prayer leads into the end of the, of the formal theological section of the book. At the end of chapter 3, with the doxology in verses 20 and 21, Paul will turn, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, in light of all of that, he says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That's not easy. And he's going to go on, he's going to detail here what it means to, to walk according to that calling. And, it, and it, what it means is that we, we need to turn our back on our former darkened way of living and thinking and speaking. And instead, we need to replace it with, with the righteousness of Christ in our speech, in our thoughts, in our deeds. All the while doing battle against the forces of darkness who would seek our overthrow. That's what's set before us. And so the idea that we can do it in our own strength, and that we just need a little bit of help, maybe, maybe an occasional, like a, you know, a kid learning to ride with training wheels, you know, just take the wheels off and give them a little push and they'll be fine. Nothing could be further from the truth. You cannot live the Christian life without access to the inexpressible power of God. Mediated to you through his indwelling spirit, and nor can I. And so that is exactly what Paul is praying for here. He's praying for this for them. I'd be willing to bet you that he was praying for himself. And he gives us a model by which we can pray for ourselves and for each other. So the question to to really ask ourselves as we think about this, this first petition here is how do we pray? When you pray for somebody, how do you pray? Do you understand for them that whatever it is, whatever temptation, let's say, they're battling with, they will never overcome it without access to the inexhaustible riches of the power of God, which will only come to them in response to the prayer of his people, in their own earnest longing and pursuit of such things. In our own lives, in our own battles, how do we pray? Do we understand its, its importance? Do we, do we recognize our helplessness? We need the power of God. May he grant it to us. Let's pray. Our Father, the Apostle Paul certainly recognized our helplessness and our need. And we cannot do it on our own. That the Christian life doesn't end at the moment of faith. That is but the doorway, the beginning. 
that the good news of the gospel is not just to save, but is to continually save. And Father, we want to confess this morning our need for your power in our lives. We want to confess, Father, that the opportunity for disbelief and unfaithfulness is readily at hand. We want to confess that the, the old man with his habits and his inclinations and his, his fleshly lusts remain strong. And then we fall back far too often. We want to confess, our Father, that forward progress in the Christian faith requires you to continue to work in us and make available to us the capacity to believe and to act. We want to ask that your Holy Spirit, who dwells within, who is jealous for us, would work in such a way that we would believe and we would act in response to that belief, that faith. That we might be strengthened in the inner man. That invisible place from which our desires and motivations and ultimately our character flow. Our Father, there are brothers and sisters this morning sitting here in this room who are struggling and losing their battle against personal temptation. Maybe they're not even struggling anymore. Maybe they've lost so many times that they've kind of given up. Oh Lord, may you work in their hearts even now in this time to convince them that the fight is a fight worth having and that the key to victory is here, the power of God. May you make it available to them by drawing them to the gospel and, and enabling them to believe and act. May you help us, Father, who perhaps are not struggling in, in the same ways as they are, but we struggle on our own, all of us, to have compassion, to hold them up in prayer, audacious prayer, bold prayer, Asking you to see them through and give them victory. Now, Lord, your word says that you are able to do far more abundantly beyond anything we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Oh, Lord, may you release that power in us even today. That Jesus would be glorified in the church, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen.